0: And if you're a part of that culture, if you're a part of that civilization, then you pay worship, you pay sacrifice to, and you worship their gods. Well, the Christians lived within an empire, um, and the gods that the empire had, they didn't really, they didn't believe in them. They didn't worship them. They didn't recognize them. And so the early uh, Christians were known to the, or were called by the Romans, atheists. They called them atheists. Atheists, a theist, a theism, the religion, the God. But if you have none, then you are an atheist. So this is what they were known as to many people within the empire, both civilian and authority. Uh, here's the reason, twofold. One, as I said before, they did not recognize or worship or sacrifice to the gods of Rome. They didn't. Now, this would eventually and later centuries get them killed, some of them. And um, and at the time of Jesus, really, even while he was still living, the fastest growing religion of the day was the Caesar religion, the worship of the Caesars. This whole phrase, Caesar is Lord, is uh, pushed back against. When Paul writes the words Jesus is Lord in the, the New Testament, that's a pretty big statement. I mean, within a Roman culture and empire context, to say that Jesus is Lord, you're replacing the name of their god caesar is not that's what he's saying and so against that backdrop you have this new movement of people this christian community and they're re- not even remotely interested in the gods of rome and so again the first thing is that rome says look you don't worship our gods you don't recognize our gods you don't even believe in our gods you're an atheist the second thing was that the Christians, the early Christians, they had no temple. And a temple was there to offer sacrifices to your gods, right? And the Christians had no temple. They had no place to go and offer sacrifices. And so this confused uh, the culture, this confused the empire, this confused people. So they would ask these questions like, well, how do you worship? Because worship Is sacrifice and sacrifice is worship. So, how do you even do that? And where do you do that? Right? So, these are important questions. So, put those on the back burner. We'll come back to that at the end. Are you at John chapter 2? Yes, Derek. Let's hear it again. Are you at John 2? Excellent. This is such an interesting placement of this story. This is the story, by the way, of Jesus and his disciples turning up in the temple. And Jesus gets angry. And as you'll see in a moment, John, in his ever-present attention to detail, talks about how Jesus formed a whip. He made a whip, and he starts swinging it around at the animals, getting them out of the temple. He turns over the tables, and the money's all over the floor. And so you have this scene of like people scrounging for their money. The money changers are trying to dig their coins back up, put them back in the bag, keep the finances clear. And then you also have onlookers. I mean, it's the temple. So you have these onlookers Who knows what they're thinking some are probably frightened some are probably laughing like if i walked up here and tripped and fell two or three or ten of you would laugh (laughs) because this is a holy environment this is a religious environment this is one of those places where you get it together and have it together and if something out of the ordinary happens then it can be for some humorous and so who knows what the atmosphere is like but jesus turns up in the temple with his disciples and what he sees angers him enough to where he has all this you know this all these reactions driving animals out of the temple, turning tables over, and saying some pretty interesting and controversial things. we were going to name this sermon, this is the one where Jesus throws some things and says some stuff. I mean, just to keep it simple. And the thing is, I mean, like if you look at John, all four Gospels include this story, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke put it at the end of their Gospels in the final week of Jesus's life. But John pushes it all the way to the front, He takes liberty to push it all the way at the beginning. And what's interesting is not much has really happened to even lead into this. I mean, the first 18 verses of chapter 1, otherwise known as the prologue, are just this synopsis of what the whole gospel story is about, that God sent his son Jesus into the world, and so on and so forth. So we have that piece. And then you have this little piece about John the Baptist. And then you have this uh, really small riff about Jesus being baptized. And then it moves into Jesus collecting and recruiting disciples— which we actually talked through a couple of those stories uh, a few weeks ago. And then in chapter 2, we haven't done this one yet. I don't think it comes up on the calendar this year, but Jesus turns the water into wine at the wedding, right? So this is the first miracle that John records. In fact, that's exactly what he says in verse 11 of chapter 2. This is the first of his miraculous signs, inviting the reader to count. And then it goes from there to Jesus gets angry and throws some things and says some stuff. And so what John is doing, again, taking liberty, moving some stories around, sequence and chronology in the Gospels aren't as important to, to them as they are maybe to us. But John is going for a theme here. But the main thing John is doing is he wants us to see early on in the Gospel who this Jesus is. And this is a pretty extraordinary story. And I think we like this story. Because this is, a, this is quite a few steps away from the Jesus we're used to. The Jesus who says kind and merciful things and gracious things, and he's nice, and he cries with the widow, and he consoles the sorrowing, the sorrowful people. There's the children on his knee. Like, we like that Jesus. This is a different Jesus. This is like the tattoo down the leg Jesus the bike is parked up on the porch of the temple. He comes running into the temple courts. He's got a bone to pick with everyone who is in there. This is a totally different situation. And I think we like this one. Because it at least allows us to see, okay, okay we know Jesus has some emotions. Like he's not just three feet off the ground in a white robe floating through history. <laughs> he feels anger. And our job today is to figure out what is he so angry about? And I do want to warn you that uh, this particular story is very complicated. And there are some things in here, um, if you're sort of a secret scholar and theologian in our midst, please do not email me and go, you left this part out. I mean, we're talking about 20 minutes left here, and this is a major story. And so I'm going to at least try and hit some of the, the more important things. And if we have time, I'll throw some other things in there too. And the best way, the most comfortable way for me to teach this today is to really just run through it. So if you have the book of John and you're in chapter 2, we're just going to move through this thing piece by piece. And let me say, as a way of introduction, the temple, uh, the temple was not the same and is not the same as like a church in a neighborhood. You know, like there's, like some of you may have drove past 15 churches to get here. It's not like that. The temple, the one begun by David, finished by Solomon, wrecked by various empires and rebuilt, or in the process of being rebuilt in this particular story by Herod, who had also passed away, and it was still under construction. The temple was the centerpiece of Jewish worship, sacrifice, political power, and national pride. So you have to know that going into this. It's not one of many. This is the temple. You can go there today, although it's not operated by the Jewish people any longer. And so when Jesus enters this temple, of course, he sees some things that are upsetting him. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But let's start with verse 13. Uh, It says, When it was almost time for the Jewish, what? Passover. Jesus went, what? Up. The key word is up, not Jerusalem. Let's say up. Okay, the key word is Jerusalem, but up is important. This is theologically and geographically true. Uh, Jesus tells a story. Maybe you know the story of the Good Samaritan. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem sits at about 2,600 feet above sea level. And so Jerusalem is a city on a hill. It is a place that people can see. And it is this place where when you went to it, you did climb into it. You ascended somewhat into that city. But oftentimes in the scriptures, when it talks of people going to Jerusalem, primarily for spiritual reasons, pilgrimage and so forth, it was always referred to as ascending. Because that's what you do when you're worshiping. That's what you do when, you know, that's what what you're set out to do is go and worship God. So you ascend to that place. And mountaintops in all religions have significant symbolic value. And so the scriptures always talk about up to Jerusalem, ascending to Jerusalem. And it's Passover. I mean, Passover is, maybe you're unfamiliar with Passover, but Passover is one of the three major holidays and festivals that were celebrated on site in the city of Jerusalem every single year. And if you were a male and you could get to Jerusalem, you went. You went to Jerusalem for the Passover and the other two festivals as well. And so you would travel. Many people would travel from afar First century historian Josephus talks about how, and numbers are always weird in ancient history writings, but basically the city would swell two, three, four, four, five-fold during the Passover. This whole, like, people in tents everywhere living temporarily in Jerusalem because they've come to worship, they've come to sacrifice, they've come to offer something. And the Passover is connected to the Exodus story, the Exodus event. So if you're unfamiliar with that story, just go home today, hit pause, go back to the book of Exodus, and enjoy that. But basically, in a nutshell, the Exodus event, the Exodus story, is when God delivered his people, the Hebrew people, from slavery in Egypt. And so Passover has this connected meaning, this embedded meaning of freedom and deliverance, redemption, you can even say salvation. And so when people came to Jerusalem from all over, they would come to this city to celebrate the Passover. They would celebrate what God had done in their history and what they were hoping he would do in their future. And again, in the days of Jesus, you're talking about the Jewish people living in a fairly oppressive system. And so there is this added effect of like, I hope that God comes and sends his, uh, his Messiah soon, as we talked about last week. And so they go up to Jerusalem. Many families, tribes, individuals, pairings, as they traveled to Jerusalem, they would sing or pray the Psalms from Psalm 120 to 134, otherwise known as the, the Songs of Ascent. They would sing these and pray these and recite these. It's meaningful. To go up to Jerusalem was powerful. And so that's what's happening. This is the setting. John tells us they're there for the Passover. It's very interesting, by the way, that John says the Jewish Passover, because John himself is a Jew but also a follower of Christ, well up in his, at the end of his days when writing this. So he's far removed from this event by many decades. And in fact, the very temple that he's writing about has been destroyed. It was wiped out in the year 70. And this gospel story is written beyond that. And so he's looking backwards and saying, back when the Jewish people did this, when they came to Jerusalem for the Passover. Verse 14, In the temple courts, he, that's Jesus, found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, before we throw stones, and we will, let's at least give some credit where credit is due. If you're traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover to offer a sacrifice to God, it's just much more convenient to not have to carry your sacrificial animal with you, right? And we like that in religion, like convenience. And so what had, what had been established over time was these people who would be hired out by the temple to come and set up shop and sell sacrificial animals on site. Isn't that nice? Now, again, just as an aside, maybe it's right in the middle of where you're thinking, I don't know. But we look back in 2012 and look back and go, really? They sacrificed animals? That's just so repugnant and so uncivilized. But keep in mind when you order your chicken today at roasters. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. We're not as far removed from that as we might think. Another thing to recognize, too, in ancient history, including the Jewish history, sacrifices were, for the most part, also festivals and feasts and meals. So this isn't just, you know, hunting for hunting's sake. There's something significant here. A celebration of sorts. And so as a, as a necessary convenience, the temple hires people and they come and they sell these animals. There's also the money changers. Uh, if you're coming from a foreign city, you need to trade your money in for the local currency so that you can pay the temple tax. And so they have that table going on as well. Um, so Jesus walks in, he sees this happening. He sees what's going on. And what we know, if you look in verse 15, it obviously angers him. It says, so he made a whip, which, interesting. I mean, John's attention to detail here is extraordinary. He made a whip out of cords. So it's almost like they walked in and Jesus looks around and says, oh no. And he's looking for a whip. (laughs) And so he goes and finds some stuff and he makes a whip. And then it says he drove all from the temple area. That includes both people and animals, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So it's not just he turns the tables and the money hits the floor. He just kind of sweeps it off and then turns the tables. And again, what are people thinking? I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have been there? You know? An interesting thing to note here, and this is um, sometimes looked over but maybe known by you, but John tells us that this all happens in the temple courts. And where this is probably happening is what's known as the court of Gentiles. And Gentiles is just an all-skate word for nations. It's the word they would use to say, basically, if you're not uh, Jewish, then you are a Gentile. And because at the time, Gentiles could not enter into certain parts of the temple, they at least made provision so that they could get into some parts of it. So they could come and worship the God Yahweh, but it was in a certain place. And so part of perhaps what's angering Jesus is that all of this is happening in that particular area. So you're talking about the one place that the nations can come and hear about God and worship God and offer sacrifice. And these people have set up shop there. Sort of rendering it insignificant. And rendering the people insignificant are you with me on that so certainly this would anger him right it's like if you decided if you were running our um i don't want to pick on anybody so i'm just going to make up something but if you were running our kickball ministry which we don't have so i'm not going to offend anybody uh which i think we should have but if you were running our kickball ministry and decided that we need to have a meeting right after first service and you did so downstairs in the kids worship center They're trying to sing and do their thing and listen and learn and whatever. And you're like, well, we'll just have a meeting down there. It doesn't really matter, they're kids anyway. You know, just give them a sucker, call it a day. It's a good day at church. Are you are you catching my drift? Like it's completely insensitive. And very arrogant. And so Jesus wants to drive them out, push them away, get them outside of the area. And so he makes this whip. And what's often missed here is that when he does so, he basically, on his own, he stops the sacrificial system from functioning, at least for a moment. It's very significant. That's the function of the temple. You come and you sacrifice. And Jesus robs the temple of its primary purpose, just for a moment. That's powerful. What is he saying? What is he doing? Why is he doing this? And then he says to the ones who are selling doves, verse 16, and John only has him speaking to these people. Get these out of here. I dare you turn my father's house into a market, knowing that they're trumping up prices. And what, uh, what the doves were sold for, or who the doves were sold to, were the poor. Doves were like a provision Like you sell those, if they can't afford a real like big animal, you can can sell them a dove. I mean, if you remember Jesus as a baby going to the temple, his parents, Joseph and Mary, purchased for their sacrifice two doves. Poor. There's a bit of a justice piece here. Where Jesus recognizes that it's all trumped up, it's all Disney World, it's all overpriced. But to the poor... He is most angry at those selling to them. So he drives them out and he speaks to them. And then in verse 17, his disciples remembered, it is written, zeal for your house will what? Consume me. They're quoting Psalm 69 verse 9. John takes liberty in this. This is in Greek. The psalm is in Hebrew. In the Hebrew, the word consume is past tense. Zeal for your house has consumed me. John changes it to future tense. In other words, the disciples are thinking, this is going to get him killed. This is going to end and be the end of him. So the Jews demand of him, it says in verse 18, what miraculous sign can you show to prove your authority in all of this? In other words, after all of this has happened, the authorities come up and say, can you give us any reason to accept and allow this behavior? And I said this last week, and let me reiterate this just for a second. In the days of Jesus, the hope for a Messiah was very high. Messianic hope was extremely, extremely high. And uh, if you're interested in a real deep swim, you can read Ezekiel chapter 40 through 44 and see that there was also this notion that in the Messianic age, the temple would be renewed and rebuilt, and that the Messiah would take his seat there and reign over the greatest nation on earth So maybe, perhaps, this question isn't negative, but maybe this question comes from a a genuine sense of wonder. Like, is that day unfolding in front of us? Is that happening in our midst? Are you saying what we think you are saying? We don't know, but it is, perhaps, in that camp. And Jesus says, basically, Uh, You're going to have to kill me to find out, is what he says. In verse 19, he answered, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this thing. Now they think this guy's off his rocker. And you're going to raise it in three days? I mean, again, Herod began to rebuild this thing, really for political power. And it it still remained unfinished. Scaffolding surrounds it. It's functioning, but it's not complete. It would sort of be completed about six years before it was destroyed in the year 70. So Jesus makes this statement that's very cryptic. I mean, like, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they basically laugh that off and say, okay. And then John tells us, but the temple he had spoken of was his what? His body. This word body, by the way, and this is just an aside, is only used again in the resurrection story. In this gospel. So John is pointing there. And then it says in verse 22. After he was raised from the dead. His disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture. Which is referring to the Old Testament. So there's some things in the Old Testament. That are pushing this. In the words that Jesus had spoken. So even his own disciples. Are kind of Clueless as to what he means by that. And think about the Sadducees who would have been there. I mean, these people didn't believe in an afterlife. And Jesus is talking about resurrection. It's confusing. So that's the end of the story. And we'll see you next weekend. But there are two big statements that Jesus is making with all of this activity in the temple that day. One, and it's a smaller one, although it's it's in there, but it's a smaller one. One is that there's a slight prediction about the temple's destruction. So there is this cryptic thing about, this thing's coming down. It's going to come down. It's going to be rendered useless for you. So there's that piece, but it's not the biggest piece. The biggest piece is this, that Jesus is beginning a whole new kind of temple making the one that he's standing in no longer relevant, as it were. Now, let me qualify that and say the sacrificial system was coming to a close, and it did. I mean, just decades later, even the Jewish people halted the sacrificial system. But it was coming to a close making a way for something else. And if you've been in this building any number of weeks of this year, you've heard this at least several different ways. But Jesus was becoming, through his own death, and in parentheses his resurrection, the once and for all final sacrifice for the sins of the world. He would become the sacrificial lamb, so to speak. Now, what Jesus did in the temple, and please understand this, was not a statement that lessened the value of, of Israel's sacrifices that had been done up to that point. He's not saying all of that was stupid. He wasn't saying that. In fact, he's very defensive of the temple. This is my father's house, and look what you're doing to it. So he's not, you know, our our normal sort of Christianized view of this is Jesus is coming in and saying all the stuff that Jewish people did is stupid. It's not. Not to him. Jesus, in fact, participated in many of these things. So it's not that he's saying that all of that doesn't have value, because the whole sacrificial system, and again, I think I mentioned this at the beginning, I mean, every culture did it. Every religion, every culture had a sacrificial system. But the one for the Jewish people is quite interesting in that it's compared to the rest of the world, it's pretty minimal, and it's pretty black and white. Like in the rest of the world, you don't know if you've sacrificed enough to your God, so you just keep sacrificing And if you see some rewards out of that, then it makes you just keep giving more. And if you see failure, you give more because you want to please your God. And so in the rest of the world, particularly in Mesopotamia, where child sacrifice was essentially born, that was born out of, we don't know where we stand. So the last thing I've got to give is my own child. And so that's how we get there. Now we think that's crazy, but we're, we're people too, and we can keep sacrificing for something until it's gotten to the point of no return. But in the Jewish system, God says, "Um, just give me a dove and we'll be okay. Almost like this, yeah, give me a dove, give me a lamb, whatever, and you'll know where we stand. You can have peace. You can go to bed at night knowing that I love you. If that's what it does for you, then great. Let that comfort you. And he accepts that sacrificial system. He even puts some rules and some laws around it. And calls people, look, if you're going to do it, then do it this way. But it's it. Once you sacrifice, you know where you stand. And so, all that in play, Jesus is not saying everything that happened in Israel's history with the sacrificial system up to this point was a waste of time. That's not what he's saying. He's not devaluing it. He's just saying that a new day is coming. And God is going to work in the world in a new way. Bringing all of this to a close. So the Romans called Christians atheists. Recap. They didn't believe or acknowledge or worship the gods of the empire. And for some, this would be the end of their life. But the other reason, maybe the main reason is, they had no place of worship they had no, no temple, no place to sacrifice, no place to give an offering. No place to take a lamb, to take an animal, to take a dove to an altar and have it incinerated for their God. They, had, they didn't have that. And so those two components put together, the only deduction that the Romans could make was that you're not really theists at all. You're atheists. There's nothing about your life that speaks of any kind of belief or practice of worship, And so their question maybe was just simply, so where do you offer your sacrifices? If your, if your God is true, where is it that you offer your sacrifices? And where do you worship? Tell us where you worship. And I find very fitting that that same question posed by an empire, Paul writes a letter to a church within that empire called Romans and puts right at the turn at the end of the letter Romans 12 verse 1 therefore i urge you brothers in view of god's mercy to offer your bodies as living what sacrifices holy and pleasing to god for this is your spiritual act of worship where do you worship where do you offer a sacrifice in the way i live i'm the temple it's me It's us. How does the world come to know your God? How do they come to know who it is that you worship? Through our lives, which is our worship. Now listen, hear me clearly. We love the Sunday gathering. I mean, we love it. I mean, I was standing over there listening to the last song before I got up here and just thanking God for subwoofers. It's amazing. I just love what we do and I love the people that serve here, and I love the environment. I hope that you love it too. I guess maybe you do a little because you're still sitting here, Uh, and I I love what we do, and I also believe in it. I believe that we should be here. You've heard me say this before. I think if you're a Christ-following person, you need to be in church somewhere every week, particularly the place that you call your church home. That's where you should be with the people. It reminds us of a lot of things. It reminds us that we're not the only person in the world whom God loves. It reminds us that we're part of a larger story. It reminds us that we are part of a larger community. And it reminds us that we need each other. And think about the things that we do in here. Like we sing, we pray, we shake hands, we do the communion together, we listen to the word, we hear it taught. Like all these things I feel are divine things. I feel like God has called us to do that. But it really isn't so much about Although this does happen, it's not so much about about that the world may know. But worship, according to the scriptures, isn't really about a song that I sing, but it's about a life that I live. It's about a way of doing life. It's about a way of being human. And the announcement of who God is now comes from our lives. Not so much what we do in here, although again, it's a beautiful thing what we do in here. And every church up and down Peachtree Road and all throughout the city and around the world is doing the same thing. And it's divine. But it's not the point. The point is that what we do in here has effect that we carry it into the worlds we inhabit. And that the world comes to know the God that we love and trust and worship through how we live. An honest reading of the Old Testament, actually, because we always think, well, that's a New Testament thing. An honest reading of the Old Testament shows that it has always been this way. Notice what Hosea 6, verse 6 says. Jesus would quote this as well. For I desire mercy, not what? And an acknowledgement of God rather than what? Right. There's even some parts in Amos where God says, look, I'm tired of your worship gatherings. Just, just do that. Just give me a life of mercy. It's not that those things aren't important to God. It's not that those things don't prove our love for him. It's just they're not the end of it. And when Jesus walks into the temple, he's seeing a culture of people that had gotten to that place where all that mattered was getting the job done. And doing it well and efficiently. And at the risk of offending and stepping on the nations. And God says, even in the Old Testament, look, at the end of the day, what I'm really looking for is a life of mercy. And I think one of the most incredible verses in the New Testament about the residence of God is 1 Corinthians 6.19 which says and we'll close with this this says do you not know that your body is a what there it is Jesus effectively shut down the function of the physical temple and relegated it to his people that somehow god lives in us now paul who wrote first corinthians also wrote colossians And says in Colossians, I don't know how that happens. I mean, I'm just paraphrasing. But Paul says, Christ in you is a mystery. So there's no sense in like really trying to figure that out, nuts and bolts. It's a mystery. But somehow, God takes up residence now in those who trust him and follow him and have claimed him as their Savior. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Who is in you, he says, whom you have received from God. The work of worship and sacrifice and declaration of who God is has now been given to us. And it's a terrible plan, but it's God's plan that now we are carriers of that. So, where do you worship? You have no temple. You offer no sacrifices. How is it that the world comes to know your God? Through my life. Not through the things that I do in here, though they may be of benefit, but the way that I love my neighbor, the way that I pray for my enemies, the way that I work my job, the way that I love my kids, the way that I do being a student, the way that I live, it's all a sacrifice. It's not a pilgrimage once a year or once a week. It's a life. It's what it means to be human. Amen? Next week, we move one step closer to Easter, and uh, we're just going to tackle John 3.16 next week. I encourage you to read that whole chapter. and be prepared for that. And uh, I'm excited about that. Um, but let today's story, and let me just close with this. Let today's story be a challenge um, that raises, you know, this application of, okay, if I'm a temple, if God resides in me, somehow, is, are there things that he wants to drive out? Are there things that he wants to turn over? Are there things that he wants to make you relevant so that he can continue to work through me? That's the question you want to wrestle with this week. And as we come back around um, to the Easter journey next Sunday, all of that will sort of come to a head. And so I'll just leave it at that, kind of an open-ended, uh, but yet also an invitation um, to wrestle with that question. Let's pray, and then we're going to uh, move into a time of communion as we close Um, our tables are up front, there's two in the back as well, and uh, you can take the juice and the cup back to your seat, that's totally fine, or you can take it at the table, um, and the offering boxes are there as well, and so let me pray, and then at your own pace, you can move uh, to one of the four tables, and then just remain in here, we'll sing one song on the way out. God, thank you for this day, and thank you for um, this story, and thank you for, um, thank you for coming here, and Um, and and in many ways being very normal, that we get to see you grow emotional and angry and um, as well as joyful and excited. But God, this story is challenging because it, in some ways it feels irrelevant, but in many ways it, it feels very like right in our life because we are your temple, like both as a church family and as individual people that there are certainly things that we do here as a congregation and that, and that we all do as individuals that you just want you want out of our lives. And this story is at its heart a call to repentance. To really check and see where I'm at, where, where we're all at. And what are the things that we've just grown accustomed to that are not um, what you want for us? And God, we desire to be people who, in some way, even if it's just small, like we just we reflect who you are in our neighborhoods, in our buildings, in our workplaces, our schools. So, I pray for the strength to do that, and I pray as a um, as a community of people that you will continue to grow this place into a church family that desires wholeheartedly to be your visible temple moving and breathing and living in the world. God, thank you for this gathering and thank you for what you do in this room. But let us take it out there and give us the courage to do so. We thank you for your love for us as we take the bread and the juice just now that you will let that be a reminder of how much grace was poured out for us. It's in your name that I pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen.